We now conclude that phase of the question, what do we know about limitations imposed upon the exercise of God's loving kindness and mercy from the Bible as it relates to the blessed atonement of Christ. We have seen that although God abounds in mercy and kindness, it is utterly impossible for God to extend pardon of sin unless some substituting measure can be found to accomplish the same purpose as the punishment of sinners would do. We have dwelt upon the effectiveness of the substituted sufferings of Christ in upholding the moral government of God and preventing its collapse when repentant sinners are given to escape the threatened punishment do them for their sins. No one can say that sin can be committed without dire consequences. No one can misinterpret the intensity of God the Father's reaction against sin. No one can misunderstand the purity and righteousness of the character of God. But rather than the state of grace being a protection against the consequences of sin in the Christian's life, his responsibility and guilt is immeasurably increased by his partaking of the merciful grace of God and being admitted into a knowledge of the tender pulsations of God's love through the suffering Savior. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, wrote the writer to the Hebrews, doubtless the Apostle Paul, as in chapter 2, verse 3. The we is rather we ourselves, with an intensified reference to those truly saved. He went on to say that persistency in sin was liable to develop to the point where such would crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame, as you read in Hebrews 6 and verse 6. Since such revolt against the tender mercies of God would be an abortion against the loving dispensations of God's government and heart, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, we are told. Such a detergent to sin is the cross, that the violators of such love are guilty beyond all words. If Christians persist on in willful sin after being exposed to the cross, and do despite unto the spirit of grace, or totally disrespect the loving kindness and measures of the Holy Spirit, to bring us back from our backsliding and wanderings from the pathway of holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, then God has exhausted his patience, and must pronounce the sore punishment. Rejected love is the most dynamic of all forces. And God is not without this reaction. Patience can be exercised until it becomes a sin, and God shall not be guilty here, certainly. Thus, after measures of recovery, which we may be assured from a consideration of the ways of God from the Bible and from our own experiences, will be the nature of the second mile that Jesus spoke about, God has only one alternative to spare himself shame as a righteous moral governor. He can only allow such to fall into his hands of judgment. This is a fearful thing, as we read in Hebrews chapter 10, 
verses 26 to 31. So greatly does the atonement of Christ bar the pathway of rebellion in the heart of the reconciled repentant sinner that God can freely pardon all past sin and pour forth his unmeasured blessing in place of the fear of future and unending punishment. So greatly does the atonement of Christ set forth the inner feelings of the Godhead over the sin question in man that God can authorize his servants to go forth to wrestle morally with all men, to open their eyes, as the Apostle Paul went on to spend his life in labor and fervency. They may declare with confidence to all such that he will turn again, even as Micah testified in his seventh chapter in verse 19. This he will do because of his very nature of love and kindness. In concluding our remarks on the profound moral force of the atonement of Christ, we need just mention briefly the important third feature that results therefrom, since it has been embodied in the above discussion. God has an unalterable law which is it impossible for him to violate in the exercise of his reason. He can do nothing that would contribute to our having a disproportionate opinion or evaluation of ourselves. A definite law of life was expressed by the Apostle Paul in the words, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity or love edifieth or buildeth up. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. If God would increase the knowledge of an unhumbled intellect by revelation of himself and his truth, he would contribute toward a greater distortion of such a one's opinion of himself, or God would be helping such a sinner to become a still greater sinner. He would be helping one who had no proper realization of divine greatness to inflate himself to still greater self-assertion, and thus a still less realization of the truth. Thus God spoke to the prophet Isaiah of old, To this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word, as in the 66th chapter, verse 2. To Peter it was revealed, Be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5. Repentance is a thorough willingness to forsake sin and seek reconciliation to God. It is a plowing up of the hard heart of sin produced mainly by the fear of the consequences of sinful indulgence. The Holy Spirit has illuminated the facts of the Bible so that the sinner trembles at the certainty of their reality. Others, too, have pleaded the cause of God and warned against trifling with his righteousness. But something is lacking. The sinner has not been humbled enough to enjoy it. He feels pushed down but not conquered. He feels turned over but not pulverized. He feels a need of being humbled further than he is, as some realization of God's greatness dawns upon his mind. Now the Holy Spirit does this by a baptism in his great presence, which sets before the mind 
a more vivid consciousness of the agony and sufferings of Christ for our own salvation. The sinner in his repentance acknowledges, consciously or unconsciously, that if the Lord Jesus loved him enough to endure all that suffering of heart for his sins, that love is worthy of his complete capitulation. And further, that the inner motives of his heart have been so bad that he ought to cast out the old man with great determination, as he would do with filthy rags, which the prophet said our righteousness could be likened to. This conquest of love is aptly expressed in Romans chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. God is so good that he does not take pleasure in the pains of our humiliation, but also so good that he inerrantly insists upon our humiliation, for he can only thus give grace to the humble. When the loving God extends his mighty hand of humiliation, it is only that he may exalt you in due time, as Peter asserted. Let us say with David of old, when a necessary process of judgment faced him, let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. The Lord chastens sinners and saints for our profit, we are told, that we might be partakers of his holiness. The growing consciousness of this love is just the thing that breaks us, and to think that I have sinned so against a God like that, the sinner declares. He cries forth, as did the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? As in Romans 7, 24. I must for sure move out of this morgue, the sinner declares, but how? Just then the power of the glorious gospel of Christ is unveiled to the eye of faith and makes unashamed, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, as we read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Notice that this power dawns to some extent upon all true believers and results in a relaxed state of gospel deliverance in the forgiveness of sins. What a change from the tussles of sin. What a settling of the dust of conflict. The eye of faith looks above all defeat with the words, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, as did Paul assert in Romans 7:25. It is the power of Christ superimposed upon his personality that is to bring deliverance. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, as we read in Colossians 1.27. We have nothing in ourselves that will avail anything, no regeneration, no eradication of anything, no humbling so that we cannot bob up again, 
no imparted strength that we can call our own, no faith that we can boast of, and no gifts of the Spirit in due time that we can independently set about to practice. The dear Master has melted our hearts by forces that we thought quite harmless, like the slow dripping of hot water upon a cake of ice. The atonement of Jesus has done what no other force could do. It has brought us down where God can lift us up higher. It has shorn us of those dependencies which would never bring our deliverance, and which feebleness we would never otherwise discover. After all these wonderful thoughts, we can only exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, as we read in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. And we might add, so much the more, as ye see the day approaching, that day of multiplied tribulation. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, how exceedingly grateful we are for the unmeasured force of the atonement of our blessed Lord Jesus, that it has made possible thy righteous forgiveness of sin, that it has manifested thy true heart toward sin, and that its mighty force humbles the sinner to the point where thou canst bless him with thy great abundance of love. We pray that many may repent of sin, look by faith to the cross of Christ, and enable thee to bless them in thy glorious salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.